I always tell people just to have a great plan. Don't be in a rush. Have a plan and execute the plan and stick to it. Be very disciplined. Because there's a lot of people that aren't disciplined and they'll get burnt. You know, I'm always a stickler for quality over quantity. And if, if a deal does not meet like the numbers, I walk away from it. You know, I do not try to make the deal work itself, work in the numbers. You know, when you do an underwriting, you can make anything work by fudging numbers like that. Oh, of course. Yeah. Our emotions are into it. You have to be having rational thinking of like, what is it right now? You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. Jason Muth and Rory Guild here. Rory with Next Home Title Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal in Boston. Rory, we're headed back to Philadelphia. I know we spoke to you, Bazagadi, a couple episodes ago out of Philly, and we love Philly. So we, we went down to Philly. We found ourselves a great person who could speak about overcoming adversity in the real estate journey and turning into fortunes, like, you know, big time investing, uh, great attitude, and learning from, you know, some speed bumps along the way that we all have and how that's uh, turned into, you know, quite a real estate endeavor for our guests. And I know, Jason, you warmed up today very literally just about an hour ago. You came across a bunch of lemons, so you made lemonade. So that's sort of the theme of today. You know, when life gives you lemons, turn it to lemonade and see everything kind of as an opportunity here. So, Jason, I see you're prepared for today. So can you introduce our guest? Yes, I will explain the lemons to lemonade in a second. But let's introduce Noel Parnell out of Philadelphia. Noel, welcome to the Real Estate Law Podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Noel's company is Crown Capital. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We can't wait to hear about some of the deals that you've been working on lately and some of the challenges that you've faced over your career. You know, we were just talking before we hit record, you know, you're a trained scientist, a pro athlete. You need to hear about both those things first and then kind of how you moved into real estate. Rory was just alluding to making lemonade out of lemons because I have far too many lemons from some staging projects that we've done for some of our short-term rentals. And I'm like, you know what? I need to do something with these things because like, they're going to go rotten and I don't like wasting anything. So I just cut them open and made, literally made lemonade out of lemons. So that is the theme for today, right? Absolutely. Noel, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm born and raised in Philadelphia. I uh, had a track scholarship down to uh, LSU. I uh, wanted to play football, ended up transferring to uh, Crossville State in Baton Rouge, Southern University. Graduated with a BS in biology. Then I went to run pro which is a, an adventure itself. So I uh, went 100 meters. And after four years of training, uh, in 10 seconds, I went up and I was like, man, what, what, what's next? Like my four-year dream was over in under 10 seconds. And I was like, I didn't make an Olympic team. What now? I ended up getting uh, selected to help a pep Olympian. So I ended up going to the Beijing Olympic Games, uh, helping a Paralympian who's blind. We're tethered together, so our hands are tethered together, and I'm a mirror image of him. And I kind of use uh, what I learned from him now with my investors that, you know, I didn't get to live out my dream, but I was, I was, I was blessed enough to help someone else live out their dreams, actually run in the Olympics, and, you know, and, and look to run for Olympic gold, you know, in his event. And so I kind of use that type of analogy with my investors you know, so I'm trying to help them, you know, achieve financial well-being, vitality, or independence. You know, so I kind of look as we're we're tethered together and we're partnering in this. After that, went to work at GSK. There's another lesson here. My stepmother and my dad were like, "Well, you didn't make the Olympic team, but now." And um, you know, came back from the Beijing Games, and I'm like, "All right, I got a good job." You know, they were like, "You need to work. You need to work." I was 27 years old. I had enough time to try out for 2012. You know, so, you know, my, my next nugget is like, don't let someone else's fears be, you know, imposed on you. It wasn't that, they, you know, they didn't believe in me. They were just fear. It was their fear of what their norm was of, you know, my dad retired from Merck Pharmaceuticals, you know, so he worked there for over, you know, 30 years. 
And she was like, well, this is what you should do. Go get in there. get you good 401k. You know, the, it wasn't a gold watch, but he, he gave a spoon where you get the gold watch at the end. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? I was 27 years old. I had another time, another shot to go ahead and try out for the 2012 Olympics. Hindsight is there, but I did learn a lesson about not letting someone else's fear, you know, be imposing on, on me, you know, they true who you are. Yeah. Wow. So, so you're from a family of scientists and then you also had this, you know, little curveball that you're a, a fantastic athlete too, if you're trying out for the, for the Olympics. And I bet, you know, when you didn't make that team, your parents are probably saying, okay, no, like let's, you know, now it's time to go to work, right? You know, now, now go get that job. All right. You know, you're done with that Olympic stuff. Like, and then, you know, you're looking back saying, you know, I could have done it one more time. Right. But, you know, hey, you had a moment with the, the Paralympian that you worked with. And, you know, it sounds like you learned a lot from that. You had an Olympic experience, which, you know, not many of us in this world have. What was it like to be in that stadium with all those people? Oh, electric. Electric. This yeah. to be, um, you know, but the stadium is beautiful. Open ceremonies was amazing. If anyone remembers it from back in 2008, uh, it was amazing. Open ceremonies. The, uh, the All the athletes were nice. They're pretty much involved with all the athletes, except for like, you know, basketball. They, they, had, they just stay in the village. You know, those team members had their own hotels. But everybody, else, you're, you're like, you know, you're, you're right around each other. So that was like a great, you know, moment for me. Back in the White House visit. So the White House yeah. visit uh, was actually great. My fun fact there, I always tell people is that like Bush, he was president at the time. He's like funny as hell, man. He was like really laid back, joke. You know, he was like the guy that you should probably hang out at the bar with. It's just like, you know, you got a lot of crap, but I was like, you know, I would, ha- I would hang out with you. You're funny, man. Yeah. He's just so, he's just so, he's so chill. <laughs> well, he's probably happy to see some, you know, athletes representing the country instead of like, you know, some other politicians screaming at him all the time. You know, I'm sure all politicians would love to be able to welcome you guys into the White House like that. So Noel just switched over to his computer uh, with some technical uh, difficulties with your phone. Your, your phone just died. You know, that's what happens. But so you were talking about working for GSK as a scientist, and then you got laid off from that job. Is that when you found your way into the world of real estate investing? Yes. And it was by chance that I was a bench scientist in genetics working at Arts and North Carolina. You know, business as usual, kind of kind of following what my dad said, going to the pharma world. I didn't go to Merck on purpose because I wanted to make a name for myself. So that's why I ended up at GSK. I didn't, you know, God, I was probably too proud there. I was like, you know what, go to GSK. And one day we get a call, like everybody come down to, um, it's the Eli Hitchens building. Anybody from North Carolina, the building looks like a BI. Some of you may recall this if you've ever been there. And they were like, we are closing this building down. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, so this is like my first kind of real job, you know, going. And I was like, what the hell? What does this mean for me? And so... Instincts kicked in and I was like, I need to find shelter. And I was like, all right. So I, I was like, all right, where am I going to live? And then I was angry. I was angry at the world. I was like, how can they just do this to everybody? You know, someone's just going to this, you know, there, I was just me. There were husbands, wives, people with children. And this is my first kind of uh, experience being laid off, not my last, but it was like my first one. I'm like, what the hell? And I was like, all right, how did the rich get rich? This is like my goose. I don't know, rich get rich. And it came up, some like stat, it was like 90, I think at like that time, it was like 92% of wealth was created through real estate. That's what spearheaded me going to real estate. And I still laugh about this to the day. I was going to Barnes and Nobles and I would go to the, you know, the, the section, like the real real estate section. And I was bookmarking, taking notes. And I was like, I could have purchased the book, but you know, real estate is kind of left sexy back then, you know, because the whole crash and everything like that. So I was like, oh, I'll just take these notes. I was being very frugal. And I kind of giggle at this. I'm like, I could have bought the books. The books were like $9.95. You know, I had $9.95 to provide. But literally, I came there every day just taking notes in my notebook and just studying real estate. Uh, the Gary uh, Keller's book, you know, about real estate that he had coming, that he had out at the time. And like real estate for dummies. And what I learned from that is, one, I don't want to be an agent. I was like, I want to be an investor. And then I was like, all right. I have no money, you know, any significant amount of money, which also triggered, you know, how can I get into my next Google? How do I, how do I, buy, a, how do I buy a home 
with no, little or no money. And that's where I got the uh, owner financing came up. And I started learning about subject to deals later on down the line. So that taught me a lesson itself. So I went almost about three to four years, nearly knocking on doors, looking for a deal. And so what I would do is that I would go to my city's uh, website. Uh, every city has it where they give like tax uh, foreclosures and uh, mortgage foreclosures. And if let's say we're in, we're in May right now. And if I seen that a auction was coming up in September, I would target those homes. Now, this taught me a really important lesson about empathy because I'm just knocking on somebody's door. Hey, give me your house. You know, right. nobody wants to lose their house because they couldn't pay their bill or the tax bill. I had no tech, no empathy. I was an asshole. You know, when I, when I think about it, I was just only thinking about myself, you know, not thinking about the impact of, you know, a man or a woman, like losing their home, their, their, where their memories are at, or guess what? Maybe their parents home where they grew up at. It was, it was totally unempathetic. And from there, I created a different system where I would say, my first option is like, how can I help you? How can I help you keep your property? How can I help you keep the property in your name or in your family's name? Then number two, how can we partner together? And then number three, you can sell it to me. Or number four, we just depart cordially. I noticed that I, um, I never discussed, well, I stopped discussing business at the door. I would invite people out to lunch or coffee. And I would say, hey, you know, we should get a free meal out of your coffee out of it. And we'll, we'll just do it that way. And it, it, if you don't want to do it, at least you got a free, you know, you know, latte. You know, don't worry about it. You know, you got free latte. You got good conversation. Are they thinking like, who is this guy knocking on my door? I'm in a bad situation. The bank sent me a letter. They're going to foreclose upon me. Now, here's this guy that wants to buy me a coffee. Correct. And you'd be surprised, uh, even with that, the empathy and the kind of more tact, some people went down with the shit. You know, there are a lot of yeah. folks that went down with the ship and like, hey, uh, and that was their choice. Most part, I would always try to target homes that were in distress, but they had an upside to it. So uh, I'm really big in the metrics and methodology. So I would like to target properties that I can either um, add some volume to and that the ARB would be no less than about, you know, 65% of the ARB. I'll say that very correctly. That the... Um, Buying it as is and putting the any value add into and that mean at this time it was me like my own sweat equity. That means I'm doing the painting, I'm placing in the vanities. It wasn't any like heavy uh, renovations where I was doing electric work. So it had to be kind of a, a, a niche product that I knew that guess what I can go ahead and refi and I would be all about 65 percent into it. And I chose that metric because I knew banks at the time were lending uh, at that time they started lending around like 80 percent i always felt that was aggressive and i would over leverage myself so i would only take out 70 percent. so i was giving myself like a five percent cushion where i wasn't mm -hmm. no completely over leveraged but i know i could take a product to the bank and they were like you know what dcsr and everything like that your debt service you know is cash flowing this will make sense here we'll go ahead and refi you out and i would give a portion that money or all that money to the former owner itself as compensation. For me, uh, I was looking for a long-term wealth and passive income. So I was always looking like the asset itself and what it can bring later on. Certain things I could have done a little bit differently on how I structured things. But overall, um, it put me in a great position to where I am right now. For those early deals, I just want to ask um, you know, how you're structuring them. Are you doing... Traditional financing, you're doing creative financing, subject twos, um, owner financing. How are those first deals? How do they actually look? So I laughed at that when you asked that, only because I know you're, uh, you have a law degree. And um, my first contract, I still laugh at this right now. When I got the first yes, I was like, great. I didn't have a contract. So I Googled things that sounded right from about every state. Please, disclaimer, do not do this. Get some, get a professional to write you a contract. And I was like, oh, this sounds good. This is from like Oregon. This is from like Memphis. <laughs> I was Googling and pasted everything that I thought it sounded good. I was like, all right, this is great. I gave it to them and they were like, none the wiser. And they were like, all right, cool. And this is on a subject to deal. And it actually worked out at the end of the day. But I giggle at that um, of the horrible contract that I did. It was, it was, it was, it was horrible. But the, uh, the, 
I guess get back to the deal. It was a subject to deal. So I had pretty much two in parallel. I had a gentleman named by Joe Dixon. Uh, they gave me my first seller financing deal. And uh, we did this on a property that he was just retiring. And he just really did me a solid uh, just because I kept coming around to like different events. And he was like, you know what? This is what I'll do for you on this property. The property was only about $45,000. The tenant that he had in there was there for about 16 years. And he was like, hey, I will still finance this for you for uh, 7%. And so I paid him 7%. It was already cash flowing. And then I actually, uh, it ballooned in 36 months. And so I had I had enough time there. And so I had used his his agreement for all my, my, own, my later seller financing deals. Because again, I still didn't really understand. And I wasn't really um, savvy enough to be like, hey, let me hire a lawyer. And with the subject deal, kind of heard the story of that. I just put stuff together. And this was actually a uh, disgruntled, she wasn't even disgruntled. He was just tired of landlording. You know, I probably spent more money on the property getting it evaluated than I did on closing costs. Because I couldn't believe like these old folks that she can give me the property. And I, I'm like, where are they? Gremlins or something at night? Like, what, what's going on? Like, it can't be this sweet of a deal. Yeah. You just never know everyone's situation. I mean, like, you know, sometimes they're just done. They're tired. They're moved on. There's a situation in their life that maybe they're getting divorced. Maybe there's an illness in the family. Maybe they have to move. Maybe something's going on with their kid. You know, like we're all, we're all at different points in our lives. And, you know, you mentioned something about how can I, you know, getting your empathy and figuring out how can I help you is, is something that you weaved into your conversation versus early on, which is basically give me your house. That seems like that's probably done. That's probably a good idea. I mean, if you're listening to this in a similar situation to where Noel was, you know, with a job transition, moving into real estate investing capacity, you know, literally knocking on doors and doing some research to see, you know, what's coming up, uh, you know, with some some legal issues that the city's bringing forward or banks are bringing forward. You're out there saying, you know, I want to I want to help you guys now, and you learn that along the way because. You were in a bad situation where you got laid off from your job and you're like, how do I, you know, these people are kind of in that same situation, but bringing the empathy into, into this conversation is smart and bringing attorneys into it also sounds like a good idea too. And I think it sounds like you've done that later on in your career, right? <laughs> yes. I, I, I always have, I have a great Lee Shomowitz, shout out to him in Philadelphia. That is my personal real estate attorney. Uh, he, I always pay him to kind of think for and keep me out of trouble. And so he does yeah. all my agreements and all my contracts right now. I got lucky on that one. Uh, just to be honest, I got lucky on that one. I really didn't truly understand on the subject to deals, the uh, do on sell clause, and really letting that um, letting that owner know like what could have happened to that property if uh, it was actually PNC Bank would have known that we transferred that deed of ownership without paying that mortgage. Um, and so, you know, I got lucky on that. You know, it's. it's I have no other ex- explanation on it that I just got lucky on it. I was paying the mortgage um, as in, you know, so they still got paid the mortgage. That mortgage is only like, at the time, it was 434 principal P&I and escrow. And yeah. at that time, the tenants were paying 875 So I was still cash flowing a little over 300 bucks from the single family home. It was great. She only owed like 24000 left on the mortgage. And I milked that property um, for like, re- like cash out refis. You know, but it was well worth over 175 you know, so I yeah. got 35 here and went to other products, but I got lucky on that one. Please use a lawyer. I got lucky. Yeah. But also, isn't it, isn't it crazy how a small little property like that can become a piggy bank, you know, if you do it correctly? Pulling money out of it, you know, at the right times and not going to Atlantic City, you're pulling money out of it and you're putting it into <laughs> other, you know, cash flowing and, and appreciating properties. Um where, where I, I have a, I want to throw a question to Rory in a second, but I just want to ask, where is that property now? Do you still own it? I still do. Two fifteen North Creighton Street. I still own it. Uh, I right. actually listed for sale this year, though, because uh, I want to. I have. I'm trying to do a ten thirty one. So I have three single families left in my portfolio, and I want to put that into a twelve unit. So that yeah, it actually is listed for sale right now. All right. Okay. Um, Rory, uh, something that Noel mentioned was the due on sale clause, and you and I have talked about that. A lot because we're investigating, you know, subject to deals and we're saying we're, you know, people have varying levels of comfort with sub two. Rory, talk about the due on sale clause, what Noel just mentioned. 
Well, you know, one of the disadvantages of being an attorney is we're trained to always look out for the problems and um, we just kind of see potential problems everywhere, which makes us a little risk averse um, in anything that we want to invest in. But, you know, it, the way it's written, it, there's a due on sale clause in just about every mortgage in the United States, which means that once a property is sold, it's the mortgage is supposed to be due um, upon that sale. And the whole subject to um, investing strategy relies on some degree on tricking the bank into not realizing that a transfer has happened um, and kind of concealing that transfer at least long enough such that um, the the buyer, the investor buyer can uh, either sell it themselves or refinance out of the property. Um, and there are a lot of risks with that because if the due on sale clause is triggered by the bank, rarely happens, but it can be pretty disastrous to both the original seller uh, whose credit is still at stake and to the the, the buyer um, whose interest in investment is at stake. So that's where, you know, we can kind of laugh that everything turned out well now, but particularly for these seller financing and subject to deals, um, you want to make sure that you have a good contract in place um, and everything buttoned up as best you can. And, you know, I call them Franken leases. I've seen them where people go in, you know, they're looking to create a lease off what they can find online. They grab bits and pieces of um, different leases they see in other states. Also make your uh, lease state specific. States are very different um, in how they do things and how they word things. So um, keep that in mind. Sounds a lot like uh, Noel's early contracts where he was oh, you know, piecing oh. them together. <laughs> <laughs> now, now on the head, I was like, guilty as charged here. Yeah. It is, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you said it because it, it is different from state to state. Um, some title companies won't do, do this type of deal. So sometimes you have to find a title company that's willing to do it. I did one in Texas. For a 20 unit and that was done strictly through attorneys so the attorneys structured everything uh in texas for me for the this um it was a subject it's a subject to deal on a 20 unit building and they structured everything which i was extremely happy to you know pay them their their retainer now you know that's done now the hard part not the hard part but the work comes for finding another vehicle to get out of it mm-hmm. or you had a question no, I was going to say, you know, you've come a long way since these first deals that were, you know, stitched together and, you know, we're, t- we're talking about the errors, but those really did kind of get your foot in the door that allowed you to kind of build the empire that you have today. When did you set your sights a little bit higher and turn from a small investor into crown capital? That turn once I achieved financial independence, um, and this is around 2015, 2016, where I, um, I, Purchased enough properties where I start exceeding my my W two, and uh, people, my former colleagues, still laugh. I probably gave the, the longest two weeks in history, about two and a half three months that I <laughs> that I gave because I wanted to screw up everything. Uh, and this is that uh, that not a that she at tech or the pharma company I was at, and um, doing that, I was like, all right, I achieved this. Now what's next? What do you want to do? And I was really pondering that I never had a bad job. I didn't like, I didn't, I wasn't disgruntled and I didn't hate my boss. You know, really what I wanted was free will over my life. I was still burnt from my first layoff where I felt someone had the power over my life. And that's, I was still scorned about that. So I just never wanted someone to have that power of my livelihood. And I think the scale up came, I was like, what do you truly want? What do you want to really want to do? Do you want to go to a pharmacy school, which is still in the back of my head to go back and, you know, get a doctor uh, at pharmacy. But I was like, you know, ultimately I want to um, buy into a, a sports team, whether that's baseball, hockey, or, uh, or football, which is a little bit harder to be a minority stake, but I needed to increase my net worth. And that's still the golden stay. And that's why I got into the apartment building of uh, really is that or apartment building and purchasing. Is that I'm just increasing my net worth to actually do bigger deals, increase my net worth to ultimately, you know, I have a goal 15 years from now to actually buy into a sports team as a minority owner. You know, hopefully it's a Philadelphia team, but, you know, the ultimate goal is to buy into a sports team itself. And that's how Crown Capital was developed. Uh, you know, I just needed kind of to expedite really my uh, trajectory. And I couldn't do it, uh, I like to say, just kind of doing, you know, four units and five units and six units. I had to play bigger at at this at this time. Mm-hmm. No, and I'm going to give you maybe kind of a 
a, a layup question here. Um, but, you know, without doing those first deals, those single families, would you have been able to jump into the bigger apartments? I love this question. So I would say, I'll say yes to no. Yes or no. Um, I would say, yes, I would have, uh, because uh, I want to quote one of my favorite books. It's the who, not how. And it's like, all right, you don't need to figure out how to do something. You might need to connect with who to do it. So I could have connected with other other uh, fund managers. Like LinkedIn's a great, that's my wheelhouse. I know a lot of people do Twitter and Instagram. I love LinkedIn. Um, I think the, the folks that I, I want to network with are on LinkedIn for, for the most part, which I call business professionals. I think I would have, I, I could have went right there and found what I needed. Um, but then I will say no, is that I love that I was in the weeds. I love that I got to pull the, pull behind the curtain because I know, I know how everything works. And there's something to be said about that. Like when someone's, I do a lot of asset management now of our buildings and where I'll hear contractors or the property manager rattle off this number. And I'm like, that math does not make sense. I know the square footage of this. That doesn't, where, where, are you, where, are you, where are you skewing numbers at or where are you kind of inflating numbers? So I know that level of business there. I just say hindsight. At that time, I needed the single family homes. I think with the, the amount of information that is currently out here from real investors, you know, and I, I say that with an asterisk because there's great marketing out here where people are taking advantage of people. There's all types of schemes out there. So I always, always bet the people you're dealing with, whether they're mentors or whatever groups you're going into, just be very careful. But there's so much information out here right now for for anyone that I think, yes, I could do it currently at this time. I could have went into a, a multifamily, you know, right away. You know, I, I had a hundred thousand dollars. So I split it up. I was like, oh, I'll split it five ways. 2020 into like small homes. I could have did that on a small at that time in a small like 12 unit. Yeah, you know, but I would say right now in this present time, it's so much information. Like someone can, someone can definitely do it right now. You know, the the world that we're in now. I left my W two last year. They they told me to leave, which is fine because I was going to leave anyway. And we've been doing short term rentals ourselves. Rory has got his businesses, so you know, like we started investing in 2016. So like we kind of have this okay. nice sliding transition now, like a break point. But I've been talking to a lot of people lately that kind of see what I'm doing and the transition that I made very easily and quickly because it was seamless because we've already been mindset-wise in the real estate investing space for seven years at this point. But I see, I talk to people that they're like in their job and they want to stop doing it. They want to start investing. Like, so what kind of advice would you give to somebody that's in that position right now? Like they're late 30s, early 40s, they're in that job. They might get laid off or they want to leave. They have some responsibilities. They have a little bit of money to save up. They probably have some equity in their house and they they want to try real estate investing. All right. But they want to make that break point right now on their own. Like, what, what would they do? What should they do? Uh, education, education, education. Read as many books as you can, uh, YouTube, podcasts, listen, listen, listen. But then also uh, be very methodical. I was going to ask, going to ask you this question as well, since you left your dozen too, because I know how I did mine. I was, I first wanted to know about financial independence. Like, what do I need to keep my lights on, food in the house, you know, mortgage, gas tank? I knew what number I needed. And once I knew what number I needed, I knew how many doors I had to achieve. And I was like, oh, check milestone. Now I'm going um, to, to, I guess, what I call financial vitality. And for that final vitality, I'm saying, all right, well, I want to enjoy myself. So I'm kind of planning out like what vacations do I want to, where, where do I want to go? Where, what type of car, maybe I want a fancier car, you know, so I'm getting very granular on like the sweeter things of life that I want. So I would always tell people be very, very specified in what your wants and your needs and what your number is. You know, when you sometimes I'll ask people like, how much money do you want? A million dollars. All right. Do you really want a million dollars? And you're just throwing it out there, like go through what you really know, really want out of life. And I guarantee a lot of times out of 10, their numbers are a lot smaller than what they think it is. It's because they weren't being very granular. And then once you have that, you can kind of work the plan backwards and say, guess what? I need to obtain this. I could obtain this in like year one. All right. Okay. Now I see this from the rental income. 
And I had this for a year or two to place down. And so I always tell people just to have a great plan. Don't be in a rush. Have a plan and execute the plan and stick to it. Be very disciplined. Because there's a lot of people that aren't disciplined and they'll get burnt. You know, I'm always a stickler for quality over quantity. And if, if a deal does not meet like the numbers, I walk away from it. You know, I do not try to make the deal work itself, work in the numbers. You know, when you're doing underwriting, you can make anything work by fudging numbers. Like, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Our emotions are into it. You have to be having rational thinking of like, what is it right now? Because, like, you know, you don't want to find yourself in trouble because you were overreaching on, you know, your, your magic ball. Like, yes, rents can go up 20% here. I have never, even in the peak, I'd never raised my rents. I was still on a two to three percent rent escalator mm-hmm. all the time. And 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 even with that, I never predicted COVID, which I was doggy paddling. We didn't even talk about that right there. I'm right. Right. We didn't. I was glad I had a degree because I, I took consulting jobs. I took other jobs working at W2, and it's no there's no shame in that because I've seen sometimes on marketing there's people are shaming people working. W2s, like, what is that? It's an honorable job. What is it? Like, yeah. cool to work a honorable at the living. And, but, you know, my, my W2 saved my properties. I had no foreclosures. You know, my I live in a tenant-friendly city. And so the eviction memorandums went down. My, 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 uh, my mortgages are auto-debited every month, the first of every month. Mm-hmm. But my, what I had to do, I had to go ahead and say, guess what? Let me go work and make sure I keep these things afloat. Mm-hmm. I think that real estate investors are, are great at figuring out a way, whatever that means, figuring out a way. You know, I don't, all right, here's the situation that's being dealt to me. I love it or it sucks. Let me mm-hmm. figure out a way to, you know, embellish the situation or get out of the situation, right? Like, you know, COVID caused a lot of eviction moratoriums, right? So there was a lot of rent not getting paid to people like you and the banks were still asking for their money. You looked at the situation, you said, well, let me figure this out. Like in our situation, we had short term, we had two short-term rentals at the time and the calendars that were full became totally unbooked. You know, so suddenly I have like vacant summers, which is when we're supposed to make a lot of our money in these properties. And I was like, all right, well, what do we do? And we just, you know, sat back and waited a little bit. And then suddenly things started, you know, kind of reopening and, and coming back to it to a degree. I, I had a situation last year where, you know, I wasn't able to close on a home equity lot of credit on one of our investment properties because I didn't get it closed before uh, my job ended. So I said, all right, well, that sucks. You know, I called the bank and said, you know, we're at the finish line. I'm about to pass papers, literally appraisal, everything. And I just couldn't close it. And they said, yeah, you know, if you don't have the W-2, we, you know, we can't underwrite this now. I'm like, okay, you know, well, I'll figure something out. Right. And, you know, I said to Rory, I'm like, I don't know, we'll find a way to tap the money if we need it. But, you know, for now, let's just let it sit there. Right. You know, I'll, I'll find a way. And sure enough, you know, lots of investigation as the year goes on. And then we looked at the rest of our portfolio and we found a way to get the assets out that we needed for the next investment. You know, that's what real estate investors do, right? You're very creative. and. Wow. You know, people don't like taking no for an answer and they don't like a bad situation that they can't really, you know, come out of favorably. So it shows a level of creativity that real estate investors have, you know, when we're facing these kind of situations. Absolutely. Uh, I get asked that all the time that, you know, do I feel like my degree is going to waste? And I was like, you know, it's, I have great conceptual thinking. So when I was doing, you know, typical kinetics, you know, you have to figure out a way out. So I kind of look at real estate the same way. I'm just kind of like, all right, let me figure out what to do with this problem that we have here. And uh, I didn't make this up, but I, it's another investor. He's like, you know, you only lose your real estate when you run out of time or money, like Las Vegas. You run out of time mm-hmm. or money, then, 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 then the bad things happen right here. But as long as you can keep the time and the money going, you'll be fine. One thing I, think I want to pinpoint on you where you're saying like, you know, the whole equity line, I had a hard lesson on that as well, that when I left my W-2, I didn't realize I wasn't filing business taxes. So those same loans that I was getting when I had my W-2 was the same pace. They were like, well, where's your two years of business taxes here now that you're this, you know, you're, you're, you're self-employed. I'm like, I never knew. I, you know, I could have made that transition a lot easier for myself because I was getting predatory loans 
where they were like, all right, this interest rate is like 9%. And I'm like, 9%? It was like, well, yeah, you don't have you don't have any two years of tax returns. You know, you appreciate mm-hmm. it for it. And so that was another lesson learned too. Of, I just didn't know that I was going to need that on my transition time. Yeah. We'll probably have to figure that part out, Rory. I mean, I know that our LLCs are pass-through entities, right? You know, so we're filing that along with our personal taxes. I don't know. You do that. Most of them, not all of them, depends on, it depends on how you have it structured and who's involved. But yeah. You bring up a really good, if, if you're going to want to get credit as a business, you're going to have to show a history of having done this. I did get some credit on one of our commercial properties this past year. I had to, you know, show multiple years of tax returns. We had to get, you know, CPAs to take a look at everything. Like it was a little bit more involved than I had expected. Yeah. I mean, even with the banking terms now, I did a reef. It was a small multi-unit, um, five unit that I actually, I got this for my son. This might be for another. My son is just turned one. But I got him. I've been buying him buildings since he's been born. But mm-hmm. it's a five unit that I uh, got, and the bank, uh, CNN Bank, they were like, "All right, it meets all the requirements, ESCR, but still, we want to hold twenty thousand back in reserves in a money market account." Where it's like you're just holding my money back to lend it out, or you're doing something with my money, right? And they're like, they were, we're just going to hold it for a year just to make sure, like your DCSCR stays above a one point two. And I was just like, all right. So they gave me half of my cash out refi and the other half they're just holding. And so I was just like, yes. it's just really interesting. And they did that within 24 hours of closing. They raised my interest rate up a point and they told me they were holding it back within 24 hours. Hmm. At the very end of, you know, so you're about to sign and you signed it and you're ready to go. And then they changed the terms. May 5th. Yeah. I was, it was closing. May 3rd, to be, to be really exact. Is where my banker called me and was like, "Hey, you're not going to like this, but this is what they're they're coming back with. We're going up on interest rate, and we're going to hold back this money." Yeah, is that Murray? Do you think that's happening a lot more these days with banks? I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of curveballs toward the very end that we've experienced lately as well. I mean, certainly, I mean, within the commercial space, banks have a lot more leeway to, to change things and do things all the way up until closing. Um, but even in the residential space, I mean, they're in some ways they're tr- trying to get you the lowest rate, which sometimes ends up with a lot of these like deep dives into your personal finances um, that are becoming deeper and more complicated and more cumbersome um, and a lot less appealing to people who are invested with multiple properties. The terms are also getting be starting to become more and more unusual, which can be a little bit of a red flag in the macro sense, but. You know, I've seen rates with six-month adjustable terms, which is just crazy when just a couple of years ago, even investors were always getting 30-year fixed. Yeah. You know, things were so consistent for so long. You know, we had a decade of Burr being a good strategy, right? You know, where you could buy something and rehab, refinance, and you can't do that anymore right now. I mean, like, people are doing other stuff. I would say Burr's dead. I, I think Burr's dead unless you're just buying it at such a cheap price. I don't really think, I don't think Burr's alive right now, you know, because you can have a great property, but at the interest rate, can you cover your debt service? Like, is it, is it going to be there? You know, so to your point, I think Burr's a little bit dead right now. Maybe Burr's on hold. I don't know. I hope it's not dead. Like, it seems it's a great strategy, right? You know, but I think the interest rate we just need to go low. Yeah, they're you know, so low. And I mean, and when you look at time, and I, I would say like, we had a sweet spot, what maybe our time was the anomaly. You know, when you look at other interest rates in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they were all, you know, pretty much higher than, you know, 7%. And then we had this era of 10 years where we're, we're owning at 2 3%. You know, I know some people that got like a 1.78. I'm like, never saw that. It's like, like oh my God. There. But, you know, maybe we're going into where rates should have been traditionally. We were just, those, that sweet year was just the anomaly. And now yeah. we're actually adjusting and Maybe the part of our economic problems that we're having now is because we stayed in that sweet spot mm-hmm. for such a long time. You know, it was over 12 years. It was, you know, it was a great run, you know, a, yeah. a great Well, you know, before I get to my final questions, maybe I should like, you know, transition into a question of like, well, what, where is things headed? Like, what is your strategy now, you know, for the back half of the year and into, into next year and beyond knowing that that sweet spot of 12, 13 years where, you know, Burr was the thing to do. That's gone. What's on your plate going forward? Uh, buckling down on operations. 
you know, I really want to make sure I'm squeezing everything out of my operations. That means I'm really paying attention to how my buildings are being ran, uh, you know, at a finer lens than I was previously. So I'm looking at, you know, late fees. I'm looking at how can we decrease like water expenditures? Can we build back the tenants? I'm using a multifamily uh, rubs company. They're nationwide. That's helping me build back the tenants. We're building back trash, trash and pest control. I'm looking at solar lights for the buildings to keep those common electric down. Because other than that, you know, you, with, with the, unless you're in a fixed rate right now, you're, you're really just trying to level on your expenses because taxes have, they're always going up. Your insurance, you know, insurance used to be sometimes between three, four hundred a door. Insurance premiums now are through the roofs right now, where I'm seeing anywhere between five and seven hundred a door now on the, the larger scale. But even on the smaller stuff, insurance rates have gone up as, as far as the premiums. They're they're going up across the board right now, and so like those are going to be like constant expenses that you're going to have. So I have to double down on my operating and just really making sure my management company is kind of laying an iron fist. You know, we're getting multiple bids on items for the current buildings. For the new buildings, I'm looking at mostly now um, when we buy them, the strategy has changed because banks aren't really lending on volume. They're lending at DSCR. And so most of that DCSRs, you know, some banks want like a 1.4, you know, or 1.35. And traditionally, it was 1.2 or 1.25 minimum. And, you know, when I'm hearing a 1.4, they're like really you know, doubling down on that. And even what you have to, your loan of values, most of them now are 55 to 65% loan of value. You know, those are the quotes I'm getting. Rates are still around on the uh, commercial side. I'm seeing anywhere from between 5.4 to 5.8, but it's really kind of the uh, the debt service that they want. And that also the cash reserves, the amount of cash reserves they want post-closing. Uh, and that's something that I'm looking at because like I'll put my own money into a deal and I may be, I may be low, but I'm like, all right, I'll come back later. They're like, no, some, some folks are, uh, well, wanted, you know, $400,000, $500,000 liquid after I, I close. And I was like, oh man, I'm not going to have that if I'm placing this into my deal as well. So those are some of the things that I have to really like strategize right now. And I'm really, I'm fine tuning that right now, to be honest. You know, I'm navigating how this, uh, you know, new banking world is going. I'm one of the people that were with First Republic. And so I was kind of like, like, oh my goodness, what's going on? I had, you know, refis going on with First Republic and I had an account with First Republic, you know? So when all that was going down, I'm like, well, where's my money go? You know, what's going on with my refis? It was so many unknowns. And uh, right now I'm just kind of fine tuning my methodologies of moving forward. Well, it sounds like you're a customer of JP Morgan Chase now, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's not a bad thing necessarily. I mean, like, you know, they're a massive bag. I, I you know, I, I work with them as well. But, you know, you bring up a great point about operation. You know, real estate investing is a business, right? And sometimes people forget that. Even if you only have one property that used to be your home that you're now renting out to somebody else, even if it's just your one vacation home that you rent out for a few weeks or more than a few weeks on the side, treat it like a business. You know, treat everything like a business. And sometimes that means, you know, check out your expenses, um, you know, get multiple bids, be empathetic and lenient when you need to be. But, you know, if you're being taken advantage of by your tenants, you know, you need to charge them for whatever it is, you know, it'd be fair with what you're increasing. If insurance and taxes are going up, well, the rent should go up too, right? So, you know, treat it like a business, exactly like you're doing. And I think kind of not retracting is probably the wrong word, but reevaluating your current portfolio in an environment like this is probably a really smart thing. Rory and I are actually doing that now. Like we had a, I don't think we're going to make an acquisition this year because we kind of want to reinvest in the, we want to take a look at our, our properties right now and see exactly what we could do to improve those properties. It's a good year to do that, right? You know, it's a good year to just take a pause, see what you got, make those repairs you need to, any deferred maintenance or anything that needs to get done to make it look better. Uh, and then yep. don't jump into a deal that's a bad deal just to jump into a deal. And that's what I'm on right now. Too. Good. Yeah, I like that. Good. Rory, before we get to our final questions, uh, any final thoughts for Noel? We had a pretty good back and forth here and, you know, you know, not to make everything current, but I can kind of see the trajectory that you're on right now to where, where we are and then, you know, what advice you're giving. So, and anybody is out there, you know, nobody can see the future. 
but I would definitely take a, a good solid listen to um, what Noel had to say. And I, I still agree about kind of standing on your operations and not acquiring something unless it's like a, a really golden goose egg type of deal. But there's going to be lots of deals coming out, even during election year, where I'm also counting on rates and dip because of to just leave mm-hmm. election year has rates dip. So it's also a good time if you're out there to leverage and hold on a 24. But there's a lot of people that will be in trouble. The sellers. We had a, such a sweet time and people were overpaying so much for properties and they were doing bridge debt. And that bridge debt, this, that them, the rates is fluctuated so far up that they can't cover mm-hmm. their debt. There's deals out there. Stay patient. I agree with you. I can echo your statements, Jason, about double dollar operations. That's exactly what we're focusing yes. on. I just showed Rory an article very similar to what you just mentioned, where, you know, it wasn't exactly the rates are jumping up on this bridge debt and that's not their problem, but it was, you know, it was that, it was that. And he spoke to you last night, right? Rory? Yeah. So, I mean, the expected turbulence in the multifamily market as um, adjustable rates start to really kick in and throw people's DSCR out of whack um, in the, the multifamily space, or certainly loans that have balloon payments and, you know, refinance required. So there might be some turbulence ahead in the multifamily market and, there could be opportunities in that too. Yeah. Hey, Noel, we asked three questions of all of our guests at the very end of each interview just to get to know you a little bit better and tie things up. They're really simple questions, and let's get into those right now. First one, if you can get on stage for a half hour and talk about any subject in the world with zero preparation, what would that be? Uh, creative financing, real estate. Mm-hmm. Not sprinting? <laughs> Not sprinting. Creative financing, real estate. <laughs> all right. Second question, tell us something, and this could be something you already talked about or something that we don't know yet. Tell us something that uh, happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working right now. Oh, man. I didn't tell you already. It could be something you already talked about. It could be, it could be your layoff or a track or anything. Probably the layoff had the, had the biggest thing that could really control my future. I still think about that all the time and then being really methodical. Yeah, being really methodical. And I've had multiple layoffs throughout my career. I mean, I've worked, I worked for 27 years and worked pretty successfully for a while, but isn't it crazy how you just can't get out of your head? Yeah. And you it, know, it, was, I, it wasn't my last one. It was my first one that made yeah. such an impact on me. And I was just like, yeah, it, it still sticks to me. I hear what you're saying though, but not be able to control that narrative. I mean, that's probably the one little thing that I, I wish I could change with how those things went down. Because, you know, in my most recent one, if I controlled the narrative, I would have been, you know, figuring out a way to transition out of that job three months later, but I didn't have that control, but it worked out fine time-wise and financially, but still it was, you want to control your narrative. You said it early on in this interview, and and that was one thing you took from that layoff, which I think is a brilliant piece of advice if that happens to anyone who's listening or it's happened to you, figure out a way for that not to happen again, right? And you've done that. Last question we have, tell us something you're watching or reading or listening to these days. Anything in the world. What am I watching? Succession. That's uh, one of my one of the shows right now. I love Succession. What I'm reading right now, Atomic Habits. So I'm re- yeah. actually rereading Atomic Habits right now. So I like to go back to some of the books I have. And I, I really That's like one it. of those reread books, right? You read it over and over. Yeah. I will date this episode. I am listening to Tina Turner right now. I was listening to a lot of her yesterday. So, you know, fortunate that she passed. But uh, those are some great ideas. I, I got a couple good book. I always see great book advice on on this podcast. Uh, but I just told Rory to download a couple yesterday as well that I have to read through. One is the Disney book, Be Our Guest, which is um, oh. you know about hospitality. It's about hospitality, but yeah, oh. we have short term rentals. You know, and the SDR business is both real estate and hospitality. You know, I, I was told to read that book, so I'm going to do it. It's big, and I think it's a lost art. Um, we implement that within our group, and I did it as far as a culture. You want to have a culture of inclusiveness. So I always tell like my property manager, it takes nothing. E-cards are free. Then they'll like, we already know their birth date. You just treat them unlike a number. And just know like, hey, this is whatever holidays, religion, just send an e-card out there. It goes a long way. And, you know, this kind of mm-hmm. make us feel special, you know, yeah. is in bed. Two like, like, Not just heads in beds. I mean, people, people feel it's special too. Butts and seats is what they say in the concert business. So, Noel, where can people find out more about you and Crown Capital if they want to reach out, learn more about you, learn about your investments, have questions about anything you heard in this podcast? Yes. Uh, I can be found on LinkedIn at Noel Parnell. Uh, there's our website, Crown Capital. Uh, Crown Capital Corp is our, is our, uh, dot com is our web uh, handle. 
And I'm actually getting more involved in social media right now. I've been a hermit for the last 15 years and you have to adapt or you die. So I need to get more to the social media side and more exposure. My partners are doing great at that. I kind of always been in the shadows. Like, how, how can I film something when I'm actually this working? So I need, right. to, I need to be better there. But I'm, I'm getting better at my social media. I don't want to be an old yeah. man kind of like in my wings. So I need to, need to get, get with the times. You're like, I'm doing the work. Like I don't have to show everyone how to do the work or that I'm doing the work. But uh, yeah, I know we, we totally understand that. We're going to link all that up in the show notes. Uh, by the way, LinkedIn is social media, just so you know. So you love that. You're, so you're already doing social media. Uh, you don't have to do TikTok dancing on social media, but if you want to, like, on um, LinkedIn, but I guess if you want to, you can. Awesome. Rory, where can people get uh, a hold of you or learn? Um, it's easiest to find me through my businesses. So my real estate brokerage is Next Home Title Town. That's nexthometitletown.com. Or my law practice is Urban Village Legal. That's urbanvillagelegal.com. All right. Um, I'm Jason at nexthometitletown.com. If you have questions about this episode or you want to be on the podcast or you have anything that you want me to pass along to Noel, you can find them on LinkedIn. But it's very easy to find. I found you many months ago once we booked this interview. If you're in Philly, go go find Noel. He's floating around town, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I love talking real estate. So anytime I, I love talking real estate. So. Oh, I, 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 I can tell. Hey, hey, by the way, there's only one person without a biology degree on this call and that's Rory. He's the attorney, but I got one of those too. So yeah. I think, yeah, but unlike you, I did nothing with it. Like I didn't even go into the science. I went to media that, um, but it's always great talking to another science brain like yourself. Wow. So, um, hey, Noel, thanks so much for all your time today. Thanks for being on the podcast. And uh, thanks for you know moving through the technical issues and, and finding your way back. You know, like the science brain that you are, you're like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure out my computer. <laughs> and and I wish you the best at the Apple store um, in getting your phone repaired. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. And you, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give us a five-star rating or drop a comment in the comment field. We read all those and we're happy to respond. Um, that's it. That's another great episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast, and we will see you next time. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast, because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.